Balak. Balak. Is it one of your favorites or no? We love we love stories of intrigue and uh, bad guys. <laughs> and then we have the follow up, which which is Pinchas. But boy, I tell you, that's going to be a good one too. So, okay, Balach, Numbers, the twenty second chapter. We're going to start with verse one. Um, before we do, let me open up with some introductory uh, commentary so that we can bring us up to this place. Um, in most cases, the parshas. Um, hold on. Uh, yeah, the the parshas Chukas uh, and Balak are read together. This year, it's not read together. One would ask what is the connection between the two. If you remember in our Thursday class, what was the subject matter in our Thursday morning class was following the thematic uh, course of the text. We know that it's not written in a chronological order, but it is written, the best way that I can explain it is in a, in a specific theme. They're attempting the writers, uh, the writer of, uh, of the Torah and the way Hashem has laid it out is that it's laid out in a matter, a manner in which the halakha or the Torah learning is teaching you a specific idea in the text. And sometimes you'll read a parsha; it doesn't seem like they're they're related. I mean, it just seems like a mixture of maybe three or four different kinds of story. But rarely is that the case. There's always an, uh, a thread that flows through it, and in reality. There is a thread that flows through uh, the Torah from the beginning, that is from Barshit, from Genesis, all the way through the end to the prophets, and that is about the theme of redemption. Once again, we're going to see that this has to do with redemption as much as the last text. In our last class, we talked about the idea of that which heals can kill, that which sanctifies can corrupt or make you unsanctified, right? This idea that in the journey of redemption, we discover that each one of us have this, these two portions of our, of our lives, called the Yetzirah and the Yetzirah the good inclination and the negative, uh, the, uh, the negative in inclination. And these are wonderful gifts of God to us. And they're gifts because one helps to stimulate the other. And that's, that's the purpose of the Yetzirah. And, and uh, I, I appreciate what one of the men in the community said to me the other day about the book Anatomy of the Soul, which I ordered it. And, and that is, when you realize that that which comes to you through your senses from your your evil inclination is not really you. It's that which stimulates you. It's that which is trying to to be like Hasatan, the, the what do you call it, the uh, the tempter or the person who tries to persuade you. You realize that that's not you. That is something other than you, even though it's a part of how you operate. And so, what we discover that redemption is about identifying these 
two partitions or those two levels. One being the good inclination, the other the negative. So in the story last week, we have the, the ashes of the red heifer. And the red heifer, the person that comes in contact with the ashes, that actually uh, you know, slaughters the animal, they become ritually impure. Correct? Mm -hmm. Even the priest that applies the water and the ashes on someone else becomes ritually, ritually impure. So the idea is that which corrupts can also purify. And it's a hard concept for you to understand probably, but if you can really get to understand how that's connected to your redemption, you're going to understand, wow. So I am made up of two, two parts. One is a part that can heal me, my Yetzer Tov, and one can kill me, my Yetzer Harar. But at the same time, the Yetzer Harar, that which can kill me, should persuade me to engage in that which can heal me. Does that make sense? So the snake, the snakes, the serpents that were in the desert in last week's Parsha, they begin to bite them after they started complaining, and they come to Moshe and they say, we need help, you know, help us out. So he is told to fashion a serpent on a, on a stick and that they are to look up. And, and we understand that the whole idea was to take their eyes off of their problem, off of the negative, and put it on the positive. And so one of the key things about redemption that we're going to discover is in our journey toward redemption, you can choose the path of righteousness which follows through what God calls for in ritual purity, or you can choose your own path and walk in it, and at some point you're going to have to still turn back to Moses and you're still going to have to recognize what ails you is killing you, but it gets your eyes off of that and get your eyes on Hashem and things will turn around. I was giving some advice to someone the other day who is very much like you guys in this community and uh, just having some issues in their marriage. And I asked them, you know, well, how was their study time? What's it like? And they were saying it's been challenging, you know, it's been hard to, to, to commit to it. And I said, look, instead of calling me over the next few weeks and us talking about what's ailing your marriage, let's call and do study time together. You see the difference? Mm -hmm. It's, though your marriage is the problem, might seem to be the problem, in reality, you and I both know the problem is ego. The problem is our own Yetzirah working. And if you can get that in check, everything else will sort of follow, fall in line, correct? So, we bring ourselves to this portion, and where's my, my designated reader? There you are. Can you read for me? I know that she probably cannot stand it, but she's such a wonderful reader. Can someone help Iris get seated? Iris, right here in the front. Okay, start with uh, verse 1. The children of Israel journeyed and encamped in the plains of Moab, on the bank of the Jordan, opposite Jericho. Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorite. Moab became very frightened of the people because it was numerous, and Moab was disgusted in the face of the children of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now the congregation will lick up our entire surroundings as an ox licks up the greenery of the field. 
Balak, son of Zippor, was king of Moab at that time. He sent messengers to Balaam, son of Beor, to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the members of his people, to summon him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. Behold, it has covered the surface of the earth, and it sits opposite me. So now, please, come and curse this people for me, for it is too powerful for me. Perhaps I will be able to strike it and drive it away from the land, for I know that whomever you bless is blessed, and whomever you curse is accursed. The elders of Moab and the elders of Midian went with charms in their hand. They came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. He said to them, Spend the night here, and I shall give you a response, as Hashem shall speak to me. So the officers of Moab stayed with Balaam. God, said, God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent to me, Behold, the people coming out of Egypt has covered the surface of the earth. Now go and curse it for me. Perhaps I will be able to make war against it and drive it away. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for it is blessed. Balaam arose in the morning and said to the officers of Balak, Go to your land, for Hashem refuses to let me go with you. The officers of Moab arose and came to Balak and said, Balaam refused to go with us. Balak kept on sending officers more and higher ranking than these. They came to Balaam and said to him, so said Balak, son of Zippor, do not refrain from going to me, for I shall honor you greatly, and everything that you say to me I shall do. So go now and curse this people for me. Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, If Balak will give me his household of silver and gold, I cannot transgress the word of Hashem my God to do anything small or great. And now you too stay here for the night, and I will know what more Hashem will speak with me. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men came to summon you, arise and go with them. But only the thing that I shall speak to you, that <clears throat> shall you do. That's good. <clears throat> Very famous story. If you remember in last week's portion, uh, Moshe, Moshe sent emissaries to a neighboring nation and asked if they could travel through, and they were denied that opportunity. What we find out in, in the story, in history itself, and throughout the, the Torah, that Hashem had told Moshe specifically not to, to do anything to come against uh, three or four major uh, cities or city-states, right? Uh, Edom, and we would wonder why would he not do Edom when we know Edom's going to be destroyed in the end. But the reason why is we understand that it's ha it has to be saved at the end of time because redemption is ushered in through how Hashem deals with Edom. It's the same way that this whole concept is that Edom are descendants of Esau, correct? Uh, the Moabites, they were one of those people that were, they said, just don't have anything to do with them. Don't hate them. Just don't, just don't have anything to do with them. They were allowed to stay in, in their place, and they were trying to navigate around. But instead, what happened is that Israel was attacked. They were attacked on their way away, not bothering anybody, and it was a defensive measure in which they severely set back 
the other nation. The king which the king of Moab, which really, in fact, is um, he is not a king due to um, what do you call it, a parental uh, matriarchal patriarchal heritage. He's a king because he was set up a king because he had charisma and everybody liked him and somehow he was pretty popular in the region so they made him uh, the king. The story goes along this line. When Balak saw, and it says, and the key word here is, it says, Moab became terrified of Israel because they were numerous. In fact, because of the children of Israel, Moab became sick. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, this community of Jews is now going to gnaw away everything around us. Balak, the son of Zippor, was not fit for sovereignty, but had just been an appointed king of Moab at the time, as an emergency measure. He sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pesor, which is by the river uh, of the native land, calling him. So, it appears in the text that uh, there's one actually it says that and he saw with his own eyes. I'm trying to find that, that uh, text if someone can find it for me. It says that he saw with his own eyes. The question is, is did, did, the, other, did the other nations see what was going on? Did they see Israel the same way that Balak saw them? Obviously, Balak perceived a greater danger than what even the other nations saw. At some level, Balak con convinced the rulers of Moab that this is a really big deal. And there was no reason for them to think that Israel would come against them. But it appears that there was a pact that had been given between two of the nations, one guarding the border of another nation. And so Balak was able to stir up Moab to think that this is a bigger deal than what it really is. In reality, this same problem exists today. Same problem exists today. So how do we say that this is all connected to redemption? It's connected to redemption in this way. Number one, it all repeats itself. It's all going to happen again the same way. We understand that the way this works is there is always going to be an antagonist. There's always going to be somebody with baseless hatred. There's always going to be the nation that just does what they do because they cannot stand Israel and you know in reality they should have been scared of Israel in the sense that if you mess with them something's going to happen but on the other hand Israel had no intentions of doing anything to Moab but what scared Balak so much was it because Israel had thermonuclear weapons <laughs> no did they have hundreds of chariot and horsemen no. They didn't have a secret weapon. Well, they did have one secret yeah, weapon. Yeah, they did. <laughs> what was the one secret they weapon? Hashem. Hashem. Hashem, yes. They, he recognized, and this is the reason why that you can read in between the text and know what mm -hmm. Balak was, was seeing. I mean, if you thought that they had a tactical advantage military-wise in machinery, equipment, horses then you would go to a neighboring country and say, join me in the fight against Israel. Find another military that is big as they are. 
Instead, he goes to get a sorcerer. He goes to get a man that is a, a, a prophet to the Gentiles. He actually speaks to God, and we'll talk about mm-hmm. this in a moment. His thinking is this. If Israel is blessed because they pray and they speak to Hashem mm-hmm. and they, they daven and they get up early in the morning for prayer and they, they seek to do mitzvah, then the best way to get them is to deal with them spiritually. So we call a sorcerer in. Now little did he know that he was actually creating more problems. So what does he do? He goes to Balaam. Balaam is a a modern-day prophet. Now I find this interesting when when I look at the life of Balaam. He is an interesting guy. Uh, He's known... He's like world-renowned. He would be like, you name it, XYZ Gentile prophet in the modern age that travels the country and people are just endured to this person. He is actually, according to the Midrashic sources, a, a one of the counselors to Paro. He and, and also uh, Pharaoh's, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Moshe's, father-in-law, Jephro, mm-hmm. was a part of Pyro's sort of advisory council. And this guy advised him to a long time ago deal with Israel. And he had a deep hatred. Now notice in the text when you read, Balak says, curse the people. He says, I want to remove the people. Now there's a big difference between those two phrases. Right? One says, would you curse people so that we can win in battle he wants to go put a curse that will remove them off of the face of the earth does this sound familiar what's going to happen in the end time redemption is that there's going to be baseless hatred and nations just want Israel to not succeed but there is a group of people that wish they were wiped off the face of the earth now we all know all of the threats and all the saber-rattling that takes place in the world of politics, that we shouldn't get worried about it. It shouldn't concern us. Except for this, we should stand up and be vocal when somebody's being foolish and when they say things. That's why the Internet is such a great place that we can post commentary of things that you see in the news and, and be very verbal about it. But it just has no basis at all. One wants to wipe them off of the face of the earth and the other wants to curse them. How can you win in that environment? How can you win? Is there any way that Israel's going to win in that type of environment right now? No way. However, you and I both know that Hashem gave Abraham a promise. And that promise was that he, his descendants, would dwell in the land. That gift and that covenant was a covenant of the land to give them the land of Israel. And they are going to get the land, and they're going to have a secure land, and they're going to have a secure land with with the Mashiach ruling from Jerusalem. It's going to happen, and it's going to happen in spite of what the world thinks and what they want. But what we're going to find out about this story is that Balaam, Balaam, in his cursing of Israel, it's not going to work. Looking to the 21st century now, you should realize 
that everybody getting up and saying all the horrible things about Israel, you, if you want to know why it runs off the back of most Israelis that live in the, in the country and they just go, well, that's just another crazy politician talking, it's this same experience. They realize no one can curse Israel. However, we're going to discover Israel can curse itself. Right? Now, we're going to talk about that in a moment, if we can get to it in this class, because it's a good subject. So, Balaam is um, approached by the emissaries of Moab. But they, they weren't the real big, big muckety-mucks. You know, he, it was like, uh, I don't know, probably a sheriff and a city councilman that came to his house, and he's like, hey, he wasn't that impressed. Now, he put it off, this whole thing is, well, you know, I can only do what God tells me to do. It's sort of sanctimonious. And by the way, you can always tell a, what they call a for-profit, false prophet, do you, you, can you understand that term? A for-profit, false prophet. You, you understand what I'm saying? A for-profit, false prophet. You can always tell one. Because they're quick to let everybody know that God speaks to them. A true prophet says what, what God says, and that's it. He doesn't pontificate about, oh, well, it depends on whether I can do this if, if God speaks to me, Right? Many religions have been started because one man said that God spoke to them. Right. right? Judaism is the one religion in which the whole nation heard Hashem speak to them. It wasn't just one man. Can you imagine if Moshe would have come out of the mountains? Hey, by the way, I was up in the mountain and this is what God said to me. They're like, yeah, right. But they saw Torah written in the sky and in the firmament and the sand. They experienced it themselves. You can't pull the wool over a whole nation's eyes. So here Israel is encamped in this valley. They're minding their own business. They're on their way to possess the land. So Balaam says, I'll pray about it. Sounds familiar? Another story from a false prophet, for prophet, false prophet. So he goes to sleep. And the reason why is a Gentile prophet hears from God generally in the night in their dreams, right? Um, I won't say that. I'll just go on. I was just thinking it. Some of you guys can think it. Anyway, um, fill in the blank. So, if he falls asleep, then he wakes up and says, no, I can't do it. Now, basically what he's doing is like, you guys, you need to send some guys with a little bit more swing. You know, maybe send at least somebody at the cabinet level to me. Do what? With camels. Laden camels and some magic trick stuff, right? They weren't interested in, you know, uh, in, uh, what do you call it, false finger pulls and the whole nine yards. They weren't, in, he wasn't interested in your little magic trick. Bring some, some little do-re-mi and we'll talk. So they show up and it's, it's pretty big. I mean, he's, they, they've got it laid out real well. He then hears from God and I don't, I can't quite comprehend this. And I'm sure that you thought the same thing. Why does Hashem let him go do what he's going to do? And yet becomes angry at him for doing it. But can we talk about that for a little bit? Free will. It's a wonderful gift, and it can be very dangerous. Now, 
I've said this before, everyone has a relationship with Hashem. Everyone. Even the agnostic and the atheist has a relationship with Hashem. They just don't understand how they relate to Him, but they have a relationship with Hashem. And Balak, as much of a strange cookie he was, God spoke to him. He was given the gift. We say that there is no prophet ever existed greater than who? Moses. Then how is it that Balak is a great prophet? Why? Because Balak is a prophet to the Gentiles. He's not a prophet to the Jewish people. Okay, so that's the big difference. So Balak spoke, Balaam spoke to Hashem. Hashem told him, go ahead and knock yourself out, but you do what I tell you to do. The reason why he became angry is because Balaam, Hashem knew he had full intentions to not do what he was going to tell him to do. He was going to try to curse the people. Why did he want to curse the people? Number one, it pays well. It's a good gig. Probably, you know, $30,000 night deal with per diem and a, 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 a Learjet. It was going to be a good deal. And on top of that, he loathed these people. He hated them. From the time they were in Egypt, he hated them. He thought that Pharaoh should have done away with them in Egypt, should have destroyed them. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put some root on them, some voodoo. I'm going to, I'm going to pray down Hashem's curse upon them. Now Hashem tells him that I will not allow you to do that. I will bless them. You cannot curse them. So what does Balaam do? He goes into this process, but on the way there, his donkey uh, sees an angel. Now, the question is this. If, if Balaam is a prophet and can hear God, then why didn't God just let the angel show up and let Balaam see? Have you thought about that? Mm-hmm. Humility could be one. He wanted to show him an animal could be higher than him. Right. Absolutely. That's, that's exactly the it. Idea. That's the whole idea. An animal. An animal. A person, the beast of burden. Right. So, so this is the deal. This, this is something, right, the beast of burden. Uh, we all have animal nature, right? What separates us from the animal kingdom is the divine essence, the divine spark in us. However, an individual, no matter how much they say they talk to God, I'll even take it one further, according to Ramchal, if you even study Torah, if you operate out of your animal nature and ego, ego, then you're no different than a jackass. No different. You're an animal. Why? Because you're operating out of your animal instinct. If you have relationship with other people like an animal, if you're constantly fighting and bickering and, and having conflict with people, that's what animals do. That's not what righteous people do. And I know that it's a very difficult thing for us to, you know, how could I, I come to Torah class, I study Torah, I, I you know, I, I feel, you know, these great events in my life have been amazing events and God has directed my life. But if you work and live by your animal nature, you are no different than an animal. And so that's why we all work very hard to achieve higher levels of righteousness, to, to really live by uh, Hashem's commandments in His Torah, and to really live it out intentionally so that we put down the animal nature and live by God's divine essence. Obviously, it's His holiness anyway that we have. We don't have our own anyway, right? So he's, the, the donkey sees the angel 
And three times the angel moves a little bit further. He beats the donkey down. And the donkey finally talks. Which is amazing. Now notice that Balaam is not even surprised the donkey talked. Did, did he did seem shocked? He just had a conversation with him. Why? Because he's a sorcerer. It's not unusual. But what is shocking is that he could see the angel, the donkey could see the angel, but he couldn't. Interesting. Finally, the angel appears and tells him, if you're going to proceed, proceed, but do what Hashem tells you to do. So when he gets there, what does he do? He stands up on the edge of, let's see, let's go to, um, oh, I want to say this. This, 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 is, the, this is the difference between uh, uh, intention and uh, you know motivation and intention and all that stuff and what you say and what you do are two different things. In in chapter uh, tw- uh, verse 20, uh, 20, 21, you know he says I'm going to you know I'll go but I've got to see what God says. Then he says uh, if you feel that the offer of these men will be profitable for you, go get moving and go with them. This mm-hmm. is God's deal. And it says the next morning and Balaam got up in the morning and saddled his donkey. This is a guy who had people. He had his people talk to their people, right? Do you know a CEO that goes in and gets his own car ready to, to head out? I mean, some do, I guess. But most of the big big guys, the uh, what's the what's the Donald Trumps? Could you see him getting up in the morning and washing his car and changing the oil before he heads out to a business trip? No, it's not going to happen. So he says Balaam got up in the morning and saddled his donkey. He was so excited, he just saddled up and went out to meet the dignitaries that had come to to be with him. I mean, he got pretty excited. God was angry that he was going. Kind of weird, but why? Because he saw Balaam was so eager to get this job done. Now, let's go. He says, uh, let's go on down to... Verse 38, when he gets to, uh, Balaam gets to Balak, Balak asks him, why didn't you come when I called you? I don't understand, what, what was the delay? His response in verse 38, Balaam said to Balak, look, at least I've come to you. Do I have power to say anything? I will speak whatever God's words are uh, put into my mouth. Balaam went to Balak, and they came to Kiras Chutzos, Balak slaughtered an animal and and a sheep and sent them to Balaam and his dignitaries. Then in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him to Bamos Ba'el. And from there he saw part of the people. Balaam said to Balak, Build me seven altars here and prepare seven bulls, seven rams for me. Balak did as Balaam had uh, uh, requested. Balak and Balaam offered up a bull and a ram in each altar. Balaam and Balak stand with, uh, stand with your burnt offering, and I will I will go for a walk. Perhaps God will uh, happen to appear to me and show me something that I can tell you. When he went off, and God happened to appear to Balaam, and said to him, "I have set up seven altars corresponding to the seven altars which the patriarchs built for you." So he's calling on the. The, the great power of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I've offered up 
a bull and a ram on each offering. God then placed words in Balaam's mouth, and he said, Return to Balak and say as follows. When he returned, Balak was standing next to the burnt offering. He was with all the Moabite dignitaries. Balaam launched into his parable and said, Can you read for me? From Aram, Balak, king of Moab, led me from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me. Come bring anger upon Israel. How can I curse? God has not cursed. How can I anger? Hashem is not angry. For from its origins I see it rock-like, and from hills do I see it. Behold, it is a nation that will dwell in solitude and not be reckoned among the nations. Who has counted the dust of Jacob or numbered a quarter of Israel? May my soul die the death of the upright, and may my end be like his. Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? To curse my enemy have I brought you, but behold, you have even blessed. He spoke up and said, Is it not so that whatever Hashem puts in my mouth, that I must take heed to speak? Okay, very good. So the first blessing, the first parable he speaks, a couple of key points here. First of all, he goes up on a high precipice so he could look down over the valley and see the Israelites. There are two, two phrases I want to bring to mind. There's quite a bit of debate between Rashi and Ramban and some others, and I'd like to bring it up. The first one is the verse on verse 9. If we could look at it. It says, I see them from the head of rocks. I look at them from hills. Rashi says, I look at the head and beginning of their roots, and I see that they are well-founded and powerful, like the nations and the hills because of the patriarch and the matriarchs. So Rashi says that what he's referring to is the head of the people would be Abraham, uh, Jacob, uh, Isaac and Jacob. Rambam says differently. He says Balaam is simply declaring that he was looking down upon the Jewish people from a high place. As the Torah states explicitly that Balak took Balaam to a high place, he took him up to Bamos Baal, and there from there he saw part of the people. There is another commentary that says at a literal level, Balaam was standing at the peak of the mountain and hills. However, since it seems irrelevant to relate where he was standing, the Midrash taught that the rocks and the hills referred to the patriarchs and the matriarchs. So at some level, what he's referring to in this blessing is how can I bring condemnation and a curse to a people that I see their roots, I see their beginning. And the next text is pretty pretty important, and that is verse 10. He says, Who has counted the whose translation has dust or, or sand? Okay, how many have um, counted the infants of Yaakov? The reason why there's a difference. Uh, as Onkelos, this translation back here, renders dust. Dust, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but Onkelos renders the word dust, uh, which is Yafer, is that it? Afar. Afar. Um, renders it as, uh, as infants of the house of Yaakov. Another interpretation, or the soil of Yaakov, suggesting that the number of mitzvot they fulfill with soil as enumerated, or like as soil. Um, so there's, there's this little 
back and forth idea, what did it mean by using soil of Yaakov? Probably the best way to translate this is you remember that Hashem told Abraham, your descendants shall be like the sand of the sea. Right. right? So in the best, the best way to understand that it says, not only do I see the beginning, not only do I see the head of the nation, the great patriarchs, but I also see that God has counted even the very sands of the sea, the infants of Yaakov. The, and, and if you want to say the mitzvah, you could. But I really think that, that Ankylos uh, is trying to transmit this idea that the soil or the sand or the dust is like the infants of Yaakov. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Now you understand why there's two different translations that you'll see in text. This is in the um, yeah, Chumash, uh, the Gutnik edition. And it basically is, is saying that the, co- the concept is if you're going to see that the, the, who has counted the dust, how, how can you count dust? Okay. Let me ask you, can you count the infants that will be born to all the people that are in this room in the future? No, we can't. However, Hashem knows those things. So the idea is that he counted the infants of Yaakov or the number of the ones of the division of Israel. May my soul die the death of the upright and let my end be like this. Now, of course, Balak is pretty um, upset about the whole thing and asks him, why did you do this to me? The second parable is going to... We're going to start in the second parable on Wednesday night. And so what I want to do is close this and tie this in with the whole concept of redemption before we close. In the journey toward redemption, there has always been, and when I say the journey toward redemption, I'm talking about from the beginning of time. From the beginning of time, there's always been an adversary, the Satan, Hasatan. The adversary is what attempts to push back the final redemption. The whole purpose behind it is that Hashem has given the adversary that authority. That's what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to have pushback. Why do you suppose that there is supposed to be pushback? You would think, wouldn't Hashem want this to be all easy and just work it out and it all happen? Why do you think that there's pushback? Free will. Free will, it's a challenge of free will, right? Correct. So it's about us having the free will to make the choice. So bottom line is this. The only way to truly appreciate what you get is that you work for it. Right? But also a chance to elevate themselves with the challenges. Right. So we have the opportunity at many levels to participate in the redemption. That's what this is about. This is about being wise moving when Hashem says to move. This is in, in reference to the nation. He says, don't don't touch those people. Don't go to war with these people. Go around these people. And Israel was being extremely diplomatic. They would go and ask them, can we come through? They didn't just rough ride through the area. They were very diplomatic in how they approached it. But yet, the nations around them that wasn't even being threatened by the whole thing, they developed a, what do they call it, uh, a self-fulfilled prophecy. They become became threatened about it. Have you seen the map of the Middle East? And and look at Israel. It's like a little blip on a radar screen. 
and, and is there anybody with a rational mind that would think that Israel is a threat? How, I mean, anybody with a rational mind, but yet the UN thinks that that's the case, and France thinks that's the case. Many nations think that's the case. Now, what was it? What was this? Is it Denmark that that outlawed Norway. circumcision? Norway. Norway. Circumcision is a threat. I mean, you see what I'm saying? It's like it 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 just amazes me. So, why why do we have this? It's because. We have got to fight for what we get. Now, I'm not talking about a physical fight, but this is about a spiritual war. What the world, the, the world doesn't realize this, okay? So, we all, we all can know this, but I'm going to reemphasize it for us in this room. The world thinks that Israel's a threat to Iran because of the military of power. They control Palestine. Uh, the world thinks they have military might, they could destroy them. But you and I both know why there's baseless hatred in the world toward Israel. One reason. They carry the covenant. They love Hashem. Now, though we know that only a percent of a percent of a percent is actually really religious, you understand, within the Jewish community, it's that remnant that is preserving this whole world as we live. It's the small percentage of people who are living observant lives that is holding back darkness in the world. And it's yet the world that despises that covenant relation. They don't even realize it. They don't even know why they feel that way. And, 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 and in many ways, I feel sorry for them because if they really knew what they were keeping from happening in the world, they would dump that ideology in a heartbeat. If they realized that world peace could come in one, one stroke of a decision that says... We need to help the Jewish people be religious Jews. We need to help them. Can you imagine what would happen if the nations say, you know what, Israel, you need to be Israel. Secure your borders, have your land, build the temple, and do what Hashem wants you to do. Can you imagine redemption would come tomorrow and be over with? But what has to happen now? Just like Israel at this time, the nations are gathered around, Redemption is close. Israel is very close to going into the land. What's happening right now? They're being cursed from the outside. This is almost a pattern, so watch this. They're being cursed on the outside. I'm going to try to say this delicately, okay? I don't know how delicate I can be. I'm going to try to say it delicately. Okay. There are those who in the religious world, the non-Jewish world, religious world, that have a connection to God. Have a connection with God. At the same time, at some level, wish that Israel didn't have her connection with God. When the Presbyterian Church of America voted to boycott Israel, this is Balaam. Bottom line, no way to get around it. I don't care how religious you are, how many times you sing three or four songs, a hymn, have a prayer, go to a Bible study. This is the spirit of Balaam. Right? There's one group. And then at the same breath, after they saw how Netanyahu and several people responded, and I'm trying not to be political, but how can you be redemptive without talking about what's going on in politics? It's evident right now. 
So in this whole idea is at the same time the Presbyterian Church releases this and people are up in arms, people are emailing and sending protests. Then they said, but however, we're supporters of Israel. Like, what? We support Israel. Well, what is that? I don't even know what that means. Do you? I mean, what does that mean? So the whole... Right. So the, here Balaam is praying to the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and offering offerings just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and appealing to Hashem to curse His people. And there are people within the religious institute, the non-Jewish religious institutions, that are no different than that. They want to see Israel cursed. And they don't realize it. They just don't understand what they're doing. In their whole noble thinking, they, it makes good sense to them. It really does. I don't think that they're doing it just because they simply you know, have some irrational thing. They, they, they think they're illogical about the whole thing. It makes sense to them. And I'm sure Balaam was doing everything he did. It made perfectly good sense. Not only did he hate them, he wanted them gone, but he was going to make cash on the side. He's going to profit from the whole thing. And so in redemption, we've discovered this. That each one of us must recognize that we're still living in that kind of a world. It's no different. How can we, in this community, of being both Jew and non-Jew together, study and Torah, what can we do to affect that? Well, we can't change the world. We can change ourselves. If you're not Jewish, you encourage people to become more observant that are Jewish. If you are not Jewish, then rise to higher levels of righteousness and goodness in your life. And live a life of harmony and peace with people. And speak about the goodness of God and Israel. Can you imagine what would happen if the Moabites would have taken a, just a second thought and sent an emissary to Moshe and go, hey, we're just concerned here. What's the deal? Moshe would have told them, well, Hashem told us not to bother with you guys, so everything's cool. Just a little communication. A little talk would have helped. So you'd be surprised what your little bit of communication can do to change your world. Take time to like articles that you see on Facebook that illuminate those problems in the world. I'm not talking about going on political rants and talking about our president and that president and this. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just illuminate truth. Don't put stuff that's not true because there's some stuff out there that's not true. Be cautious. But illuminate that stuff. And then as well, illuminate things that are found in Torah that you study. It's amazing how you can change the world that you're in. I was contacted by a young man uh, on the East Coast not religious at all. I think he may be agnostic, atheist, I'm not really sure. And he said, you know, he's, we've been Facebook friends for a long time. I've known him since he was a little toe-headed child, right? I was his youth director. And he said, you know, I've been looking at your Facebook page and I really want to talk. He said, because I'm really not sure that I even believe in God. I'm, I'm not really sure where I'm at with all that. And he's been, he's been into Zen Buddhism, I think, and some couple other things. I had no idea that he was looking at that stuff. And so you just don't know what you put up, how powerful it is. We've got to remember that in the age of conflict, don't be a part of the conflict. Be a part of the solution to solve the conflict. I mean, there are some people who's going to disagree with what you put. That's fine. But don't go the extra mile to agitate people either. Go, you know, be a, a, 
chesed, you know, somebody full of loving kindness, it's amazing what will happen. Okay, this concludes the class. So those who are watching online can stay online, and uh, we'll do the Q&A session now. So everyone say shalom. Shalom. shalom.